welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. And Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Biotech's busiest week of the year is drawing to a close. I hope you all survived JP Morgan, Biotech Showcase, the Wuxi Global Forum, and the umpteen other meetings that have been going on this week. Lauren and Steven are here to preview the year ahead. They've been talking to investors and bankers around the globe for BioCentury's annual BuySiders view and financial markets preview. Steven, I'd like to start with you. What are investor expectations for access to capital this year? Yeah, they're pretty positive, Jeff. The consensus among 14 investors and bankers that we spoke to was pretty positive. The outlook is good. There was a strong finish to 2020, but despite that, a lot of them think that there's a really good, strong setup headed into 2021. A lot of that is related to macro issues. Low interest rates are there for the foreseeable future, which mean that you should continue to have strong interest in equities. And then the political sort of spectrum, despite all the maelstrom that's going on right now, people feel that it should be pretty benign with relation to any major impacts on the markets. Expectations are that the Biden administration is going to have their hands full dealing with the pandemic, rolling out the vaccines, and really nurturing a economic recovery such that there's really going to be a lower risk that they'll step in and do anything from a policy standpoint that could really hurt the market, like raising taxes or something like that. And did anybody that you spoke to worry about drug pricing? That is what they always talk about every election year. It is true. And it is still very much a concern. But I think the expectation is that given all of these priorities that the new administration is going to face, that's a, a can that's going to be kicked down the road again. It's something that I had a few say that it could, as things get back to normal, could be something that starts to rear its head again, maybe at the back half of the year. But most likely people are looking at it as a 2022 issue really now. Well, we'll see. I know our man in D.C., Steve Usden, believes that the Biden team can walk and chew gum at the same time to steal one of Simone's new favorite phrases. And he is expecting them to pick up at least some of the push toward drug pricing fairly early on. So I guess that's a wait and see issue. Hopefully that doesn't. I, I think we should also mention that representatives of the drug industry and trade organizations really want to try and push the message that the industry is about innovation and use the evidence of 2020 to press the case for the value provided by the industry. And I don't know if they're going to be capable of changing the conversations, but it certainly doesn't seem from what Stephen's saying that investors yet incorporating that into their outlook. It's definitely, everyone mentioned it, and it's definitely something that they know is there and is coming. It just doesn't have the same overhang on sentiment now that it has in years past. Cool. I know you also were looking at how the sector has matured and the impact that has had on investor participation. What are your thoughts there, Stephen? This, I think, was one of the more interesting things that we pulled out of the data that I, I was actually quite surprised with. Really, the, the investable universe of biotech has really actually exploded in the last five years. So there, there was one stat that I pulled out and put in the story. So at the end of 2015, there were 384 public biotech companies that had a market cap above 200 million, which 
often is considered to be the minimum threshold, like a mutual fund or one of these larger investors needs to participate or, or invest in the stock. You had 384 essentially investable companies. And then at the end of 2020, there were 372 public biopharmas that had a market cap above a billion dollars. So there's really been this huge increase in this mid-cap space that typically is much more liquid, just much more investable for these larger pools of capital because they can get in and out of them more easily. And so it just opens up biotech to a much broader sort of swath of investors than the sector had really ever been all that exposed to in years past. Excellent. Well, are there any reasons to think that there's still room to run? Yeah, this was one thing that there wasn't consensus on. Some of the investors who were concerned about valuations getting a bit rich in some areas, if you look at any of the biotech indexes, most of them are at or near their all-time highs. But I had a couple point out, if you look at sort of the 2016 to 2019 period, most of those same indexes really underperformed sort of the broader markets. And that's not something you would typically expect because biotech is so much higher risk, you would think if you're putting your money into something higher risk, you should be generating a higher return, but there should be outperformance. But it actually was underperforming quite a bit, like the, the broader S&P 500. The argument there is that maybe what we saw in 2020 wasn't some crazy exceptional year, but maybe it was actually a catch-up trade from what sort of the value creation we should have seen in the previous three or four years. It's not something where we have to worry about this being a down year. The flip side of that is obviously as the vaccines roll out, some of the other sectors are going to start coming back like retail or airlines or all these other ones. And so there will be some degree of rotation into those as well. What the investors were calling that recovery trade is also something to be, to be wary of. Sounds good. Well, I'd like to dig into some more specific picks. Lauren, last year in the buy siders view story, the main takeaway was that it was the year of CNS. This year, was there any sector, any indication that popped out above all others? Yeah, there's just so much interest in targeted oncology this year. I, I think every buy-sider I spoke with mentioned at least one targeted oncology candidate. And these may not be as flashy as, as IO and I think that these kind of drugs against these kind of targets have been coming to market for decades. So this is just an area where investors are comfortable with this new crop of highly selective targeted therapies. I'm, I'm mostly thinking of kinase inhibitors, but there are others too. There's just such a well-defined market. Tox is relatively low and predictable and efficacy is so high in these subgroups. It's drawing high valuations and we're seeing a lot of investor interest. So I guess it's coming on the heels of the RET inhibitors that were approved last year that had really big deals. And then this year, it seems to be just pushed even more by the progress in the KRAS inhibitor field. Investors seem to be really excited about this. I think there's going to be a trickle of data coming from Angen's leading Sotorasib, but also from a bunch of others that are, are filling the pipelines too. Lauren, how crowded are these different sort of target spaces? Are we seeing two companies going after each of these sort of unique mutations, or are they getting really competitive? Because I, I know that was one thing that came up with a few investors was they were starting to worry a little bit about how competitive some of these spaces might get. And that if you start to see four or five, seven, eight different therapies going after the same 
very niche, small subset population against a mutation, can you really have that many winners in these targeted subpopulations? Yeah, I think that's why 2021 is a sweet spot for some of these. And investors do seem to be a little concerned about the long-term value because once someone figures out how to hit one of these targets, everyone's going to be able to do it. But for a lot of very specific targets, very specific populations, there's no approved drug right now, or the first are just getting there. Last year, we saw the RET inhibitors. This year, we see KRAS. There are specific CMET mutations. And I think there's a window of opportunity to draw value from these before the space gets too crowded. I think that's driving some of the interest at this time. And for many of them, I think there are only a couple at this point, but I'm sure that the space will become more crowded. And I think that is a concern. I think it's interesting because we've had for a few years, as you talk about splashy sort of interest in immuno-oncology. And while that's been going on, it's as if the targeted oncology space has been steadily moving forward. A lot of those targets really compared with the IO, have much lower risk. As you say, you kind of know the talks, a biological risk. The risk becomes executional. Whereas I think now what we're seeing with IO is, I think you used the word lull in your story. (laughs) What we're seeing is that field now has to iron out a lot of the kinks, figure out how to make it safe. And as I think you've pointed out, we haven't yet had a real successor to PD-1. Everybody's waiting to see the next thing on that front. I think CAR-T's got a couple in the market. What is it? Three, actually, maybe. I don't know if it's yin and yang kind of thing, but it's as if IO has to go through its maturation period. And now maybe targeted oncology or precision medicine is coming of age now. I think so. And I definitely don't think there's a lull in innovation in the immuno-oncology space, earlier stage innovation, but definitely in new products coming to market. I think finding the next checkpoint, finding a way to get CAR-Ts into solid tumors, get these paid for and find the market penetration. That's where the field is almost stuck at this time. And the investors I spoke with don't think 2021 is going to be the year when all of that or even possibly any of that is solved. But there are a few IO targets or programs that might reach inflection points themselves this year. Everyone is watching CD47 and you've got the BCMA CAR-Ts that may finally get approved. And so it's progress. It's just not at the same point, I think, as the targeted oncology field, which makes sense. Are there specific milestones that are on investors' radar this year? I know aducanumab has been a big pick one way or the other for folks. Is that still big this year? Anything in the CAR-T or gene therapy space that folks are looking out for? I think the conversation around aducanumab has changed a lot. That was what everyone wanted to talk about last year. And and last year, it was all about what an approval would mean for Biogen and what it would mean for other Alzheimer's companies. And this year, there's less excitement around the program. A a lot of people are less convinced that it, it could get approved. The question now is what it means if aducanumab does not reach the market for Biogen and for other companies. And, and it still could mean positive things for neuro companies because Biogen or other companies that haven't given up on the amyloid hypothesis might be in the market for new neuro assets. That could give that field a boost still. I think that's right. I think the FDA adcom for aducanumab was so sharp in its rebuke that I think a lot of investors now have largely priced out any approval there. Last year, it was really a binary sort of thing. Biogen, you saw it go up and go down, you know, 
billions of dollars on each sort of small decision around it. Whereas now, I don't think it's nearly as binary in that I think a lot of the downside has already been priced out of the stock. I think if it does get approved, you'll see a big move up. But I don't think you would see nearly as big of a move down if it doesn't get approved, because I don't think anyone's expecting it to get approved now. But I do think you're right that if it doesn't, that positions Biogen to either where they have to do something fairly big to try and add to the company, or they might get taken out themselves. We could see some more large cap consolidation there. Lauren, any milestones that stood out for you? Gene therapy came up as another big thing. Everyone was anticipating a couple of big readouts in the first quarter, and we've actually already seen them. There was a lot of excitement around the Sarepta data and some Biomarin data. The thought was if these two readouts were positive, this would have a, a huge positive effect on sentiment in the, the whole gene therapy field. Unfortunately, the Sarepta data investors were disappointed with that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with investment in gene therapy companies this year. I personally don't think this will have a negative effect on other gene therapy companies, but it could have had a, a big positive effect. Yeah, I think one of the things with gene therapies, especially where you're looking for one and done, is that your data have to be really robust. If it's one and done, you don't want to have sort of questionable data around, did it really make the end point? So that's largely a biology question. If it doesn't work in one gene in one disease, doesn't necessarily carry through to other diseases. So that sort of makes sense. But I think it is going to be important to see again, for executional risk to see gene therapies actually make it all the way and get approved. We need to see these gene therapies for more prevalent diseases get approved to see what commercialization of these is going to look like, how successful they actually can be. On top of the biology question, that's what investors are really waiting for. One company I'm really watching this year is Vertex. Obviously, their CF franchise has been a smashing success. They have a new CEO, did any of the people you talked to have anything to say about where they might go next? Are they going to quadruple down on CF? I know they've been doing a lot of deals in the past couple of years. What's next for Vertex? What I heard from a lot of people, obviously, we saw the first readouts that basically failed in alpha-1 antitrypsin. I think the issue with Vertex is that while the CF franchise has been so successful, Basically, the stock has gone up so much that pretty much all of the future growth and value of that franchise is, is priced into the stock. What investors are really looking for is what's going to be the next sort of growth driver for that company. A lot of them were looking at this AAT franchise or program as that next big opportunity. It's essentially looking to do the same thing, develop correctors or potentiators for a protein in, in alpha-1 antitrypsin with a, if I recall correctly, it's an even larger patient population. So it was really being hyped up, I think, as a second franchise or, or, or growth leg for Vertex. So when we saw the first program fail, that really took a lot of the wind out of the sails of the company. And I believe, uh, Lauren, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the second quarter is when they're expecting readout from the second program in that franchise. And so that's going to be a real big milestone for the company there that I think a lot of people are keeping close tabs on. Lauren's story is already out. We published it last Friday, so you can find that on our website, biocentury.com. And we'll hopefully publish Stevens tomorrow, the 2021 Financial Markets Preview. That's all we have time for. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. 
Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music. We'll be back with the next BioCentury This Week podcast on Monday. <laughs>